All right. Well, I want to ask you guys here, have you ever used a word the wrong way before? Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever guilty of using a word the wrong way? Yeah, throw your hands up in the air like you just don't care. Yeah, okay. Um, All of us probably. I want to invite you to think about now to revel in the shame that was when you discovered. Uh, So I want you to do that. Remember maybe when you discovered that you were using a word the wrong way. And while you're doing that, I will share two examples, bearing my soul here from my personal life, uh, to tell you times when I have used words the wrong way. First one, uh, way back, my mom always talked about, just was always talking about how she has a condition called astigmatism. She would just go on and on about it, talking, oh yeah, astigmatism, I have astigmatism and it affects my vision, especially when I'm driving at night and all these things. And I thought to myself, you know, why does she go on about this so much over and over and over again? I mean, she's only got the one She's just got a single stigmatism. I mean, come on. You guys will get it later on the drive home. Um, then I come to find out, it's not like, oh, I'm thinking if she would have had you know, multiple stigmatisms, that would, be, that would be something to talk about, right? And I'm like, oh, this, the condition itself is just called astigmatism. Wow, that was, I, I was older than I care to admit when I realized that misuse of that word. I also have to bring up the, what I call the lackadaisical debacle of 2012. As I went through most of my life thinking that the word was lackadaisical, there's like an S sound toward the beginning, and then a professor of mine uh, revealed that the word is actually lackadaisical. You guys all know that apparently, because no one looks shocked, or you're just holding it together, and later today you'll be like, I can't believe I've been using that word wrong. So it is, I, even, even now, I have to be very careful about pronouncing it. Lack a days ago, okay, that's the way. You can Google it later and, and, and uh, prove me right, but it's hard when we find out that we've been using a word the wrong way. Maybe it's just like a simple mispronunciation or something, but it's even worse, I think, when we start when we find that we've been using a word, like we've been using the meaning of the word wrong. And then you find out and then retroactively you're embarrassed about the 137 times that you publicly used that word and you're reliving them all. Or maybe that's just perfectionists, I don't know. But today we are going to talk about uh, one word in particular that we use wrong all the time. And in order to introduce this, uh, first I want, to, I want us to hear from my good friend Inigo Montoya. That's very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. He said it with a better accent than I'm going to repeat it now, but he, but he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, good people of St. Paul, you keep on using the word hope. I do not think it means what you think it means. And so today, we're going to have an intervention. We're going to learn about the two uh, main ways that we use the word hope wrong. And then we're going to feel bad for a little while. And then, toward the end of the sermon, uh, we're going to learn the right way to use it. And then, as we walk out, we're going to link arms, and we're going to walk out very happy that we will never use the word hope wrong again for the rest of our lives. Does it sound like a good plan for us? 
Okay, let's put our hands in, yep, and okay, we're ready. We're gonna learn how to use the word hope as the way that the Bible uses it. But uh, before we do that though, I want, to, I want us just to reflect upon that epistle reading, Pastor Bugle read it earlier, from 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And, uh, and Paul, um, this is really, it's a letter that is written, um, it's a, the main theme of the letter is hope. Paul writes this as a letter of hope for followers of Jesus. And he wants the Thessalonian Christians to be encouraged, to be comforted by the hope that comes from the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I am kind of a nerd. And so I like, when, when I have a book uh, that's not one of the, the favorite books from the Bible that we read a lot, I like when we get a book like 1 Thessalonians, we don't read that one quite as often. I like to dive into some of the historical and the cultural context to think, okay, well, we're, already, we're, we're reading someone's mail here today. Let's try to find out uh, why was the letter written? So we have to look in uh, the rest of the Bible for the answer for that. We actually can look in Acts chapter 17 and we can see when Paul visits the city of Thessalonica, which is a city in modern day Greece, Thessalonica. So Paul goes in there, he does his thing, but he doesn't get to stay as long as he normally does. And that's because the powers that be recognize him and the message that he's bringing. And they say, oh, we don't want any. We've heard about you. You're the guys that are turning the world upside down. That's an actual quote from Acts 17, maybe one of my favorite verses in the whole book. They're turning the world upside down with all this Jesus talk about how Jesus came and died and rose again and how that changes everything. We don't want that. But Paul was there just long enough to do some damage. Just long enough to get some people hearing and believing this. And so a church starts there. And so Paul and his buddies, they get kicked out of town. They get run out. And Paul, after a while, he says, I'm kind of worried about those folks, my, my friends, those fledgling Christians there in Thessalonica. I want to write them a letter and see how they're doing. I want to write them a letter and encourage them because now we've told them about Jesus and we've left them and now, now they're being persecuted. So let's write them a letter about the hope that comes from knowing Jesus. And there's other ways that they were corresponding to. Paul seemed to, uh, to know that they were worried about their loved ones who had died. It says um, that they had fallen asleep. That's, that's a, a kind of a euphemism for death, right? We use that as Christians sometimes, that they are asleep. And I, I like that because I think it, it it's not just a euphemism, it actually denotes the temporary state of death for the Christian, right? We believe that because Jesus has died and risen again, that now all who believe in Jesus, they're not gonna stay dead. That's not the final existence, but we look forward in hope to a resurrection and to eternal life. And so Paul, uh, you know, the Thessalonians are kind of concerned about, you know, well, what's happened to my loved ones who have died? Well, where are they now? What's gonna happen on the last day? You know, are, are they gonna rise first? Are they gonna get to see Jesus when he comes back? And so, so Paul passes on actually a word from the Lord. It seems that Jesus taught people directly what was gonna happen before he ascended. And so they have a word from the Lord and so he, he comforts them, he encourages them, he directs them to Jesus for their hope. So this is a letter of hope, but unless we figure out how to use that word the right way, some of that hope might be lost on us, okay? So before we go any further with what Paul is saying, 
we have to figure out how to use the word hope. And to do that, we have to figure out uh, the two main ways that we misuse the word. The first is sometimes we treat hope like it's a gamble. That's not the hope of the Bible. Hope is not a gamble, but we treat it this way sometimes. We, when we think about the biggest things that we want and need, forgiveness of sins, life after death, right? We sometimes think, I sure hope I'm gonna get those things. I sure hope that's gonna happen. And as we say that, we are crossing our fingers, and you can't see, but I'm crossing my toes too, right? We look for the nearest wood. <laughs> Knock on wood, I sure hope, gee, I sure hope that's gonna happen. Those things that God has promised. It's kind of how we, it's kind of ingrained in us to use it like, like we're gambling, right? There's a, I want you to think back now to your freshman level philosophy classes, okay? And there was a, a French philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal. Any Pascal fans out there today? No, maybe a few of us, yeah, okay. Um, he, he became famous over time for something that's called Pascal's Wager. It's a gambling man, and as good philosophers are, he would sit and just think all day, right? And so he would think about the existence of God. I wonder if God is real. I wonder if all that Jesus stuff is true. And he thought and thought and thought about it, and he thought, I wonder if I can prove that all this God stuff is real, that God actually exists. And he came to the conclusion that he could not prove it one way or another. So then he thought, well, okay, gotta, gotta make a bet. Am I gonna bet on God or bet against God? And he used his brain to reason that actually betting on God was the smartest thing to do. Betting on God, this is, I'm gonna wager on God that it's all real, that it's all true, because if, if I wager on God and it all turns out to be true, then I'm good, right? Then I'm gonna go to heaven. Because if I bet against God and then it's all true, then I'm out of luck. I'm a loser then, right? So it's smart to bet on God. But then on the other side of the coin, he said, well, even if I do bet on God, and it turns out that he's not real, none of that stuff is true, there's very little downside. Basically, the two things, the two downsides are, I wasted a lot of time in church, and maybe those people that made fun of me for believing that stuff were right all along, okay? So he said, it's a, you know, high very high reward, uh, kind of a low risk thing. That's Pascal's wager. And so sometimes we treat matters of faith and matters of you know, Christian teaching kind of the same way. We're like, well, of all the options available for hope for the future, this one seems like the best option, I guess. So we'll say, yeah, maybe it's 51% to 49%. Ah, we'll just bet on God. But brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not like we're going to the casino. It's not like we're playing the slot machine for our eternal life or something. It's not like, you know, you're not playing heads up poker against Satan. And you're thinking, ooh, I hope Satan doesn't catch a good card on the river to beat me. Sports betting is uh, legal in Ohio, I, I've, I've been told. Uh, and you can look up on an app even like while a game is going on, the live betting odds for a game. So like this afternoon, the Browns, we'll say the Browns are ahead 10 to seven in the third quarter. And you can look up and be like, wow, the Browns, they have a 58% chance of winning at this particular moment here on second down and seven, 12 minutes to go. 
I'm going to place a bet on that. Uh, on the other team, of course. Uh, but I, but I, 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 my, my strange mind started to think, what if there was live betting, live betting odds for our salvation? You and he would be checking it all the time. So would I, right? Let me look up my salvation odds today. Well, oh, here's a good one. I went to church today and improved my percentage 1%. Going to heaven, 1% more likely to go to heaven. Ooh, it's good. Two hours later, you tell a lie about somebody, plummets 2% down. You would be obsessively checking this. But this is kind of how we treat these things sometimes. Whatever hope we have is just a gamble. We don't feel confident in any of it. It's just, well, it's just the best chance that we have. I, I don't feel secure. Hope is not a gamble, though. That is not the hope of the Bible. If we're using it this way, we're using it wrong. Sadly, there's another way that we misuse the word hope, though, and that is when we treat hope as if it were just simply optimism. That's not the hope of the Bible either. The hope is not simply optimism. It's not just like looking at a glass of water that's half, you know, there's half the cup is filled in. Like, oh, I'm going to choose to call that half full instead of half empty. It's not just like looking at the storm clouds that are brewing in your life and thinking, I'm going to just look and see if I can find a silver lining there. It's, it's not just kind of like tricking your brain into to thinking more positively. It's not just having a good feeling that things will turn out well. That's not the hope of the Bible. It is not some generic kind of positive thinking. Optimism, really, at its core, it's, it's fundamentally different than biblical hope because optimism is focused much more on the circumstances in which we find ourselves. The circumstances. So you're, you're kind of trained to look and you know, read the things and think, you know what, given all of this, you know, there's, there's enough encouraging things that outweigh the scary stuff, so I, I think there's a decent likelihood that things are going to turn out okay. But sometimes, we all have to admit, even the most optimistic, positive, annoying uh, person among us sometimes has to admit that staring at the circumstances does not make you feel better. Sometimes there's just, <laughs> there's just no way to be encouraged when you look at some set of circumstances in which you find yourself. And we can look back through the Bible, some of God's people throughout history, and they would, they would say the same thing, like, yeah, there's nothing just in my set of circumstances would give me confidence that things are going to turn out okay. We can think about Joseph from the Old Testament, right? When he's down in the well, or when he's languishing in prison, he didn't have anything to really hold on to from his circumstances to make him think that things were going to get better. When David was facing Goliath, didn't really have anything in that set of circumstances that made him feel confident that he would win. Daniel, when he's thrown into the lion's den and he's this close to a lion, he did not have, there was nothing in that lion's face that made him feel like that lion was going to say, no, nah, I'm not hungry. You get the picture. There are times when circumstances ain't going to make you feel any better. In fact, they're just going to make you feel despair. Good thing that biblical hope is not built on circumstances then, huh? 
Biblical hope is not built on circumstances. It is rather built on a person. And I don't have to tell you who that person is, although I'm going to. That person is the risen Lord Jesus, the one who has passed through the worst circumstances that you can imagine, passed through death into life. He has now defeated death and the grave, conquered it, won the victory, and now Paul is saying it is this person, the risen Lord Jesus, who has fulfilled all the promises of God, and now because he lives, you also will live. Your loved ones who trusted in Jesus will live. This is your hope. He is your hope. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he's not talking about gambling. He's not giving them the live odds for their salvation. He's not telling them to just put on a happy face, get a better attitude. He's directing them to the hope that, of the Bible, the hope of God's people through all time, and that is Jesus himself. Biblical hope is built on a person. And it looks back. It's interesting, because we, a lot of times, you know, we're, we'll say over there's the future right now. We're, we're looking at the future, and we're, we're really, this we're doing like this kind of hope, right? We're doing, a lot of times, I really hope it turns out okay. Hope it turns out the way God said it would. Um, but biblical hope invites us to look backward, in fact, to look back at God's track record, his faithfulness, his character. That's what Paul directs us to, to trust about what's going to happen in the future, but it's based on what has already happened. And so we look back on God's faithfulness to his people, like our forefathers of faith who have gone before. We look back on his faithfulness to them and on the salvation that he has brought, how he has kept his promises. And so we, we think about past activity of God's faithfulness that gives us a sure and certain hope for the future. We think about the flood and how he protected his people and saved them, and then how when his people were in slavery in Egypt, he came and rescued them just as he promised he would, and then brought them through the wilderness and provided for them and brought them to the promised land. And then, yeah, even after they messed that up and sinned and they get evicted from the promised land, he restores them and, and uh, puts them back, you know, saves them from exile and puts them back in the land. And then above all, all of these things, a promise that was running through every generation, he keeps the promise to send his son, our savior. And that son comes, Jesus, and he lives and he dies and then he lives again. And Paul says that by dying and rising again, Christ has kept all the promises. He has fulfilled them all and it is because of Jesus now that we have hope. We look back on what God has done for us through Jesus and we look into the future and we have not a, not a gambling kind of hope, not an optimism kind of hope, but a sure and certain hope founded on the person of Jesus Christ. That's why I, I love this passage, this 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. I, I love to use it at funerals. I love to use it at a committal service at the graveside. It's one of the, it's the last Bible reading that I read before we finish that up, before the family you know, leaves. We hear that, that Easter hope that we have in Jesus. And I love how this, this whole letter really is, um, 
It, it really is held together by this theme of hope. And Paul ends the letter, in fact, with a couple verses strengthening our hope. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a little bit more, but right there, I hear that, and I'm like, I really want that. What are, what are the chances, Paul, that that's gonna happen? And then he, he finishes it up. Right here he says, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He directs us again to the person. He is our hope. He will surely do it. No doubt about it. And I love how Paul ends just our particular passage today. He gives these wonderful words, and then he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, when I hear, it's, it's pretty rare, but when the Bible, when, the, when the, the biblical author gives you specific instructions for how to use the words in the Bible, I listen <laughs> and I obey. So I, I've been trying, hopefully it's been working, I've been trying to encourage you with these words. I have been powerfully encouraged by these words as I have read them. And this is, this is an encouragement. This is a comfort for us. Where there is, there's precious little in life that is certain or sure. But Paul says, you have a sure and certain hope in Jesus. Your sins, they are forgiven. Your eternal life is taken care of. Your loved ones are with the Lord and you too will rise. Because Jesus lives, you will live also. And he says, it's sure and certain. He says, no doubt about it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we thank you for the foundational hope that you give to us. It's not a gamble. It's not just thinking positively. We thank you for the sure and certain hope that you give to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to look back on your faithfulness and to look forward in confidence, knowing that you will surely keep your promises to us in Jesus. In his name, amen.